The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Matthew Grenade, and he is a senior... God, how do I describe his role? His title really doesn't do it justice. His official title is Chief Market Intelligence Officer at Point72. Follow the progression that has taken place. Stevie Cohen was running SAC Capital for a long time. That was eventually converted into a family office, which was Point72. That reopened to outside investors last year in 2018. Um, and Grenade has been working there uh, for a good couple of years. Previously, he was at Bridgewater with Ray Dalio. You'll hear all about that during our conversation. But more importantly, you'll hear about the intersection between man and machine, between the way models can be used to not only manage assets, but improve the entire process, uh, along with a variety of big data and other approaches uh, that are really quite fascinating. If you are at all interested in quantitative investing, machine learning, hedge funds, uh, the state of investing today and what anybody who is pursuing alpha must do to stay current, then you're going to find this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, here is my conversation with Point 72's Matthew Grenade. My extra special guest this week is Matthew Grenade. He is the Chief Market Intelligence Officer at Point 72. That is Stevie Cohen's new hedge fund, which employs about 1,400 people and manages about $13 billion. Uh, Point 72 Asset Management was converted into a hedge fund in 2014, and last year it reopened to external investors. Matthew comes to us uh, by way of Bridgewater Associates, Domino Data Lab, and he got his both undergraduate and graduate MBA at Harvard Business School, where at undergraduate he was the president of the Harvard Crimson. Matthew Grenade, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you for having me. So let's start. Let's start with the most unusual thing on your um, resume. You're president of the Harvard Crimson, not exactly a hotbed of future hedge fund officers. How did that come about? What was that experience like? Uh, well, a couple things. I mean, in terms of that experience, uh, you know, running a newspaper is one of the most amazing things in the world. Uh, and I got to run a small one at Harvard, but I, you know, I think it's uh, just an incredible job because 
you're in the middle of so much information, you're helping shape the debate, you're investigating things, so many interesting people. Um, Harvard's an awesome place to do that at. And so um, there, are, there are a few jobs that I've loved as much as I loved that one. Uh, it was incredible. Uh, how you get that job, um, there's sort of a couple of things. One, there's a bit of a path. Um, so generally as a news person, a reporter. Um, so I was a reporter for my first couple of years. And then uh, I was the head of the central, what's called the central administration beat that covers the president of the university. That's also kind of a traditional stepping stone. Then there's a process called the turkey shoot. Mm -hmm. um, the turkey shoot runs for about a month leading up to Thanksgiving where they pick the next president. Um, there's all sorts of sort of arcane rules. But the, probably the most interesting is that every outgoing member member of the paper gets to vote. And if more than three disagree, you're blackballed. And so you really? basically hold in uh, sort of in, you know, in sort of in veto mode for as long as that goes. And so the deliberations generally run about 16, 18 hours straight. White smoke, um, wisps up. Exactly. And then, and then there's a big party and whatever, sort of once the sort of unlocking happens. But I had, I think, six or seven opponents for the job. And, uh, you know, you have to, you know. Like, a little politics. Yeah, a little politics, a little message, a little of this. Um, hmm. uh, and that's, that's how it works. But it, it was an amazing opportunity. So that's an unusual background as a journalist and someone who's publishing a paper to really being a data scientist for a financial services shop. How did that career path unwind? Well, they're, they're probably more similar than you think, because, I mean, a lot of it comes down to information, collecting information, using sure. information. Um, and so, you know, I've always been someone who likes to know what's going on um, and know what's going on in the world. I like to sort of be ahead of other people and knowing things. And so that's the that's the similarity. But the you know, but the career arc was um, I went from uh, from college to McKinsey, uh, was a business analyst there mm -hmm. uh, and then went to business school, like you mentioned, uh, and then ended up at Bridgewater. Um, and uh, you know, which is also a fascinating place is a fascinating place. So I was there for six years um, mm -hmm. and and uh, it's, a, it's a phenomenal place to work. I'm a big fan of Ray Dalio. I find his philosophy just totally intriguing. I think Bridgewater kind of gets a bad rap. People have called it a cult and have criticized the radical transparency. You survived there for six years. Can't be all bad, right? Had to be pretty good. No, it's not all bad at all. In fact, um, I think it's, uh, you know, one, uh, you know, as investors go, um, you know, they're, they're as good as it gets right. um, and, you know, just phenomenal at it. And look, I think the differences of the culture there get overstated. Um, meaning you know, the radical transparency. Well, and just the... meaning like how different it is from, you know, look, I mean, like, you know, I would say everywhere I've ever worked, McKinsey, Point 72, Domino, Bridgewater, um, you know, they've all been ambitious people who were trying to get to the right answer, who wanted to do great things. Um, and, you know, like at core, like that's that's a lot of what Bridgewater is about. And, you know, Ray and the team there are very thoughtful about ways to, um, you know, to sort of apply certain ideas, um, you know, like you want to, you always want to make sure you're getting the best opinions, right? And mm -hmm. so they're very explicit about, you know, who should you listen to about things. But, you know, I see, I see Steve ask that question all the time, you know, like, mm -hmm. why am I listening to you? You know, I should be listening to this person instead. Um, and so I think Bridgewater's great at sort of scaling it, but, but, um, but I think that the ideas are, um, are not, not quite as radical as the media would want you to believe. Huh. And then the transparency um, is just great. I mean, I, I always I love say, the idea. Yeah, I mean, I always, I always used to say, like, it's a very clean place to live. And the reason it's a very clean place to live at Bridgewater is you just don't say things behind people's back. You just say things to their face. Um, and uh, you're just he, sort of he straightforward. Write, he writes about that in his first book in a chapter where he describes Ray's people problem. I mean, most founders and chairmen don't spend the chapter 
describing their own people person. That's fairly transparent. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fairly transparent, and and that's just how you're expected to operate. You know, I mean, if you're going to say something about Ray, you say it to him, and um, and you know, I I have many stories of 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 saying things to Ray that I think people would find. Surprising? <laughs> uh, no, not horrifying. I mean, just, they were me being honest, and him and I trying to sort of work out differences. But the, you know, the only rule was just don't say it behind his back, and huh. and that's you know, it's it's interesting that that's considered so radical. You right. know, I mean, it's not it's not that radical. <laughs> so now let's let's take this forward. You end up at at point seventy two. Your title is Chief Market Intelligence Officer. Uh, I've never even seen CMIO as a uh, abbreviation. What does a CMIO do? That title was the title I had when I got there, um, and I was really focused at that point on proprietary research. And so what, what we mean by that is how do we take um, data sets or surveys or web scraping or sort of all the different things you can do um, and make that useful to our portfolio managers and analysts? Um, since then, my job has evolved to include a couple other things. So I also oversee our central book at this point, mm-hmm. um, which is our sort of a systematic best ideas book we have. And I also oversee venture capital. And we just haven't really changed the title. <laughs> huh, quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about big data and machine learning and artificial intelligence. Help me make a little sense about those buzzwords, which have come into vogue for a while but but your shop has been using these things for for quite a while. Um, what's the state of the industry uh, uh, in terms of machine learning and big data and artificial intelligence? Well, I think the you know the the thing to sort of contextualize all those terms um, and you know I, I agree with you they're they're very buzzy. Um, but but the way I like to think about it is being model, what I call model driven. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can talk about model driven businesses or model driven processes. And really, the idea of a model is it takes in data. It could be big data, or it could be not big data. Um, it runs a certain set of logic on that, um, and then it produces a prediction of some variety. Um, and you know, basically, it, it it tries to close the loop around that data so that you know you're constantly improving the the logic or the algorithms. And so Netflix is a model driven business, and Tencent sure. is a model driven business. Um, and obviously finance and, and, you know, the hedge funds we're talking about they're you know, they're, they're, they're very model driven. What I would, you know, what I would say is that, you know, the state of the industry, uh, in that regard is that, um, you know, these techniques are highly, highly relevant, uh, to kind of almost everything we're doing, you know, whether it be extracting signal from data sets or, you know, all the way up to making trading decisions. Uh, and so, you know, we're investing, you know, like a lot of hedge funds, we're investing a lot in, you know, people with, uh, the data science capabilities and and with the machine learning uh, capabilities as well. So Ron Course very famously said, torture the data long enough and it will confess to whatever you want. How do you avoid running into that problem of when you're building models and putting a ton of different quantitative information into it, how do you avoid that bad outcome of, hey, if we backtest this enough and we make these tweaks, we could get this to say whatever we want? Yeah, so I think there's I think there's a couple of different ways you do that. I mean, one is, um, you know, you want to have a fundamental intuition of some variety around what you're doing. You know, I mean, you're not just sort of running everything through a machine. I mean, some, some people do, but but not not that's not how I like to do it. You're not just sort of running everything through and sort of seeing you know th- seeing what fits because to your point, something will fit, um, right. and it may be a real thing or it may be you know a very short lived thing. Um, and then you know you have to have a lot of discipline in terms of looking at your um, you know, it's called out of sample, uh, or sorry, basically in sample, out of sample, and live. Um, and what that basically means is where are you 
you allowing yourself to, to fit the parameters? Where are you sort of just looking at the results, but still in a, in a backwards looking way? And when are you sort of really trying it out? And, you know, we have very strict rules about how we segment those different things um, before we start, you know, using, um, you know, putting money against a certain strategy. So an out of sample, uh, just to put a little flesh on that, if you're testing, I don't know, large cap U.S., hey, let's see how this did in the past. Let's see how it does overseas. Not just the area you're looking for to see if there's really something to the model. Is that a fair descriptor? Yeah. So let's say you were using, um, you know, credit card data to trade Chipotle, you know, or, or something like that. Um, you know, what you would do is you would sort of, you know, you'd build some rules um, and you would sort of fit those rules to some sub, some set of data, some time period, you know, three or four years. Then you would stop fitting the rules and you would sort of look at the next three or four years and sort of see, it does that, those two match? Do they look the same or, or is the behavior very different? And then you would, and then you would basically start running the model live from today and then see, again, if those match the other two periods. And so you're looking sort of for a consistency across that. And if you're not seeing that, then that's a good sign that you're overfitting it. It's also, you know, going back to my original point, you know, you want to think about whether or not there's a real intuition there. You know, I mean, should credit card and Chipotle make sense together, right? Mm -hmm. It probably does because a lot of people use a credit card at Chipotle. But, you know, if you were using, uh, you know, credit card to trade GE, you know, you might you might start scratching might, your head about what you're doing. Right. Might just be a random correlation as opposed to a real causal exactly. relationship. Exactly. So, so let's talk about some of these unusual um, data sources. I know uh, alternative satellite data is all the rage these days. People are looking at parking lots, how filled they are. They're looking at how deep transport ships are sitting uh, in the water, how far below the waterline they might actually be. How esoteric can we get with these alternative types of data? Well, I think you can. Uh, I think you can get quite esoteric. I mean, I think satellite. Um, you know, satellite's been around for a while, and to your point, I mean, it's it's very widely used. Um, you know. You know what we think much more about now is um, you know sort of much more specific data sets um, you know kind of that that give you you know a read into you know a limited number of tickers often via some sort of payment system or something like that mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know I, I I think that we're I think we're just you know we're probably in the third inning of something or something like that in the in the in the data movement in investing huh that that's quite fascinating so Let's talk a little bit about complexity. You know, we could go back 100 years and just look at Graham and Dodd's simple P ratio, and more expensive stocks over time perform uh, less well and have lower expected turns than less expensive stocks. Are we running the risk of making things too complex? At, at what point does complexity get outweighed by its own internal complications? Well, I think... Um, you know, I, th I think this goes back to the point I was making about, you know, ab about an intuition. Um, and, you know, at, at the end of the day, at, at point 72, you know, we are we are fundamental investors. You know, we believe that uh, that, you know, that companies ultimately, you know, trade on how they're doing as a business and the kind of cash flows they're going to produce. Um, and, you know, everything we do, I mean, we'll, we'll use very sophisticated data science to predict a revenue stream or something like that. But we're at core trying to do something fairly simple. You know, we're trying to understand what the revenues are, what the costs are, you know, what the growth pro profile of the earnings are. Um, and, you know, we never sort of lose that grounding. Um, and so, you know, look, there's a lot of ways to make money in the markets. 
um, and I'm only I'm not an expert in in a lot of them. I'm only familiar with some of them. Uh, but but for us, I think that grounding um, back to the pretty simple principles um, is is very important and not something that we lose track of. It's interesting that you I think of you guys as a quant shop, but you keep referring to intuition. What's the intersection like between man and machine? Is it really um, technology aiding human decision making or is it mostly, hey, let Skynet make the decisions and we'll just uh, see what happens? So at Point 72, we do um, we do um, we do a mix of of three things. We have a, a very large discretionary business uh, that's global, long short equity. You know, it's people driven. It's portfolio managers and analysts um, looking at some subset of the of stock universe, um, meeting with management teams, looking at data sets. Uh, and then making decisions in a in a fairly discretionary fashion. Um, we also have a systematic business that's running on algorithms, um, and then we have a, a people plus machine business, which is the one that I oversee, which is the you know what we, what you called the central book earlier. Um, where what we're doing there is we're looking at um, what the behavior of all the people is as one of the important inputs, um, but we're also looking at the data sets and we're sort of, and we're running algorithms to essentially help make decisions out of that. So one way of thinking about it is that historically Steve had a best ideas book that he he ran as a, mm -hmm. as a discretionary investor and over time we've built that up into a systematic best ideas book um, but but a lot of the input of that is from discretionary investors and so um, so you know one of the kind of key questions we're always asking is what are the people best at and what are the machines best at and you know our view um, is that you know in terms of of really being able to interpret fairly nuanced and complicated situations inside a specific company, the people are still um, uh, really, really good. Um, you know, there's other things that machines do very, very well. Uh, but you know, if you're going to meet with a management team and interpret a large set of data that that has a lot of sort of nuance and specifics to it, um, the people still beat the machines at that. And so we have a you know we have several hundred people that do that. Do Do you see that edge of humans over machines? continuing indefinitely or at a, some point in the future will smart um, computers and artificial intelligence be able to do that also well indefinitely is a very long time <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm gonna I'm not, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna comment on indefinitely what I will say is that our our thesis as a firm right now over the next call it you know seven to ten years is that um, is that it is people plus machines um, and that the people uh, are very good at the nuanced situation, at the idea generation, at the interpreting the thin data, at the synthesis, um, and that the machines are very good at conducting, uh, uh, correcting for behavioral bias, at portfolio construction, at trade execution. And you know what we're trying to do is figure out how you marry those two up in a really smart way, um, and that that is essentially the you know the next wave of hedge fund. But um, uh, but you know like where where we are ten or fifteen years in terms of what people can do versus machines. Uh, I don't think I, I can comment on that. Huh. Quite, quite fascinating. Let's talk about the venture capital work you guys do. Um, what makes you different from traditional VCs? Well, I think a couple of things make us um, different than traditional VCs, but probably the most important is we 
we are extremely expertise focused in how we are designed. So um, uh, we have no generalists. Um, we have certain practice areas. Right now we have three different, three or four different practice areas, um, all of which are led by people who have uh, worked in that space and invested in that space for quite some time. And kind of one of the standards I use is, you know, when, when, uh, when, portfolio companies are meeting with uh, the investors on our team, do they believe that the, the person they're sitting across from is the, one of the world's leading experts on the area that they're working in? Um, so that that's one difference. I think the, the other difference I would point to is we're extremely outbound in how we operate. So one of our challenges was you know, we, don't have a, we don't have a brand in VC you know, mm-hmm. the way a Sequoia does or something like that. And so uh, you know, one of the biggest concerns you got to have in venture investing is adverse selection. Uh, and you, you probably don't want to be taking what's coming through the door. Um, so, you know, what we focus on is um, themes that we think are uh, going to be big money makers, where we think real change is happening, where technology is is um, uh, is is driving really important impact. Uh, and then we go try to find the companies that we want to invest in and knock on their door. You're proactively um, looking extremely for Extremely proactive. Huh, that's um, quite almost, interesting. almost all of it is an outbound motion, uh, like 98% uh, of it. Um, and then... Um, and so that so those would be the two big differences. I'd also say that um, you know, you know, probably as firms go, um, our diligence is more intense than a lot of venture firms. I think that comes from Steve. Uh-huh. Um, you know, Steve. Uh, um, Steve, one of Steve's sayings is "Do the work," um, and uh, you know when we go into an investment committee to talk about something, uh, there's kind of only one answer, which is "I did the work." Um, uh, otherwise, the meeting's going to end very soon. And so uh, we we hold a pretty high bar in terms of the amount of research we're going to do when we're looking into a company. So those would be the three things I'd point to. So once you decide to make an investment in a startup or an existing company. How actively involved um, with the corporate management are you? Are you guys there giving them advice, assistance, or is it more of an arm's length, here's some money, now, now go do something great? It varies, uh, but I would say we're, we're fairly active. And the reason we end up being active is it goes back to this expertise uh, thing that I was describing, which is that, um, you know, because the team is made up of people who are very deep experts, it tends to be that the entrepreneurs want um, them on the boards um, because, you know, they're, they're, they're very useful in sort of sorting through the strategic questions and, and knowing where the business should go. Um, you know, it's interesting because when we started out, I, I was actually uh, – pretty reluctant to take board seats because I actually, you know, I think it can be a bit of a distraction from doing the next investment. Um, but it, it turned out it was an important ask from a lot of our entrepreneurs. So we do end up taking a lot of board seats, which means we're, we're pretty involved. And we talked earlier about uh, the quantitative approach um, 0.72 often employs. How much big data do you bring to bear when trying to make a decision about either an area to invest in or a specific company? Very little. Um, very little. Very little. Huh. Uh, you know, part, part of it is the areas we're investing in. I mean, we're generally investing in enterprise companies uh, in their early stage. And so, you know, lots of times they'll have three or four customers um, and there isn't a whole lot to sort of, you know, torture the data for. Mm-hmm. Um that doesn't mean we don't do research. We do a tremendous amount of research, but it tends to be more interviews with people and um, you know, c- you know, customer uh, you know, follow-ups with customers and and probing on how uh, you know how, how a certain product works um, or market sizing exercises or things like that. Um, but we, we've not brought a lot of the of the of the big data to bear on on venture. Um, though I do think you know in in the consumer space there could be opportunities for that, mm-hmm. um, and that that might be something we explore down the road. 
So this might be a little bit of a weird question, but how challenging is it to manage two distinct businesses with two very different approaches? One is so quantitative and data intensive. The other seems to be a little more intuitive and subjective. Do you find any sort of, when you switch hats, is, is that a little bit different to get into that, uh, a little bit challenging to get into that different headspace? I wouldn't say so. I, I think the similarity between both of them is that in both cases, you know, we're very process driven, um, you know, and, and the process looks different in each case. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a very big believer, and, and I think this comes from my, my Bridgewater training um, in sort of process over outcomes. Uh, and, you know, you have to, you know, you have to think ahead of time about how you're going to approach a problem and why that's going to give you an advantage in, uh, in your approach. Um, and on, on, on both sides of the business um, that I'm involved with, you know, that's how we, how we come at it. Uh, and, you know, when we have, you know, very elaborate uh, sort of, you know, pre-designed sort of ways that we're going to develop algorithms. And we have very uh, uh, clear ways that we're going to make investment decisions on the venture side. Um, and so for me, as a, as a manager of both of those areas, that's mainly what I'm trying to do is make sure that process is really solid. Um, and, uh, and and that's that's the similarity. How, how significant a portion of the Point seventy two book are the venture sides. So the the venture investments are all Steve's uh, personal investments. Um, so they're not, not point seventy two. They're not. Well, I mean, we use it's point seventy two ventures. We use the brand, but it's right. not. It's not in the fund. Uh, so it's it's Steve's personal money, um, and it's you know it's it's not it's not super large. I mean, it's a it's a couple hundred million. So dollars. now I have to ask the obvious question: If it's Steve's personal money, is there a different um, thought process in terms of an exit? How does that pressure or how does that structure affect how you approach it? Or is it just a continuum across everything and his philosophy is the same, whether it's public or private investments? I think his philosophy is very similar across both. Uh, you know, he is he is an IRR focused investor, um, mm -hmm. and you know he has a hedge fund that does well and produces a good return every year. Um, and you know he expects us to be the same to bring the same discipline to the private. Uh, investments and so you know we think about IRRs, we think about exits, we think when we can get cash back out, we think about applying leverage, we you know we think about all these different things, um, but it but it all comes back to you know producing a you know a good uh, rate of return, um, and that's you know, that's that's how he thinks about the world. Hmm, quite fascinating. So you mentioned traditional um, forms of fundamental analysis. What what metrics do you find important? Lots of people have talked about price to book, and then it seems to have fallen a little bit out of favor. Other people are looking at uh, various forms of valuation. What's the most important fundamental uh, approaches that that point seventy two is considering? It just varies so widely. I mean, you know, we're trading. Uh, you know, in the U.S., we're trading almost eighteen hundred names, and we also trade in Asia and Europe. And so, uh, you know, there's I. I I can't give sort of a one-size-fits-all uh, answer to that question because there's, there's so many different sort of sub-segments. So following up on that, you have written uh, that investing changes over time, and mm -hmm. it's the role of the portfolio manager to adapt to those changes. How have you seen uh, recent changes in the marketplace, and what sort of adaptations do people have to make? Well, I think— you know, I think it's some of the things we're talking about. I mean, I think the, um, you know, the explosion of big data or, or what we call alternative data um, is is 
you know, a, a big impact. Uh, you know, it, it used to be that most of the investing was a conversation between the investor, the company, and the sell side. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, you know, uh, you have, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, whether it be credit card or geolocation or email receipts or all these different satellite, like you were talking about, um, you know, all these different things that, uh, you know, that you can you can bring to bear. So I think that's a really important trend. I think the other important trend, like we were talking about earlier, is is people plus machine. You know, what uh, what are machines good at versus what are people good at? Um, you know, machines uh, are quite good at um, at repetitive math and complicated math and, um, you know, have a lot to bring to bear in terms of portfolio construction and trading and, 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 and those sorts of areas. Um, so those are probably the two most important trends that, um, that we're seeing and thinking about. Hmm. Quite interesting. So you, you talked earlier about the pursuit of alpha for a lot of the hedge fund industry. This has been a rough decade. Alpha has been hard to come by. Lots and lots of other hedge funds have, had a hard time uh, meeting their benchmark. Two questions that come from that. What's behind Alpha's um, elusiveness these days? And what must elusive Alpha, I haven't thought of that previously, and what do active managers have to do to stay relevant and at the top of their game? Yeah, well, Steve, Steve always jokes that uh, he'd just like to go back to the '90s. Um, you know, when uh, it was easy, when, when it was when it was a lot easier. Sure. Um, and uh, and look, I mean, you know, uh, success draws competition. That's just capitalism. And I think that um, you know, n- you know, I think there's not a whole lot of mystery to why it's harder. I think it's harder mainly because a lot more people are doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's certain I'd say sort of boogeymen in the market. You know, like ETF flows and things like that that people also talk about. But but I think the the core thing that makes alpha harder is just, you know, the scale at which it all takes place today. Um, and, you know, I think in terms of, of, of maintaining an advantage, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I remember the very first time I met Steve, I, I asked him the question of how he had been able to sustain his fund for so long. Um, and he at such you know, a high level, at such a high level. And he said, well, cause I've rebuilt it four or five times. Really? Um, and you know, and, and you know, the, the, the point he made is that this is just a constantly changing game. That's always attracting competitors. And if you think that whatever success you have today is going to be true tomorrow, you are really naive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's, it's part of what I, I like so much about working with him and there's just a restless energy to him because he knows that that's what's required to continue to survive. And so so that's how we approach the firm. We have, um, you know, always, you know, tons of new initiatives and experiments going on and things will succeed or, you know, and things will fail and we'll kill them and things that will succeed will scale. Um, but that but, you know, I think his his view and I, I agree with it is that it's that, you know, it's that activity that's how you maintain an advantage um, because the business, you know, in three or four years isn't going to look anything like it does, uh, you know, three or four years prior to now. So Michael Mobison calls that the paradox of skill that the success of the hedge fund industry and other sectors of finance have attracted so many intelligent, talented people that the easy money has gone away and it's become so much harder. Well, that's what makes it fun, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's what makes it. It's the you know, it's the competitive drive and the and the knowing that the bar is always going up. Um, and, you know, it's that challenge that I think draws a lot of people to the industry, hmm. to, to to say the very least. So look around at some of the other hedge funds out there, like DE Shaw or Citadel or Renaissance Technologies, and they were pretty early on to the high frequency trading and other computer driven uh, approaches. Is that anything that is uh, in point seventy two's field of interest, 
Or is that something that, hey, let the uh, computer-driven guys do that? You have your own specific skill set. So we don't do any high-frequency trading. Um, we do a fair bit of computer-driven trading in our mm-hmm. systematic unit, and, and then in some of the units I oversee, they're systematic as well, so driven by computers, um, but, uh, but, but nothing that would constitute high-frequency. Um, uh, you know, it, it's certainly a, an area where a bunch of people made a bunch of money, but it wasn't something uh, that we did. One of the things I didn't ask you earlier but is relevant here is the Domino Data Lab. Mm-hmm. What was the thinking behind that, and how have you used that experience uh, at Bridgewater and at Point72? Yeah, so the thinking behind that uh, was was really sort of two big ideas. One was that we were moving to a model-driven world um, where, you know, the, where algorithms that were uh, trained, fed and trained data that made predictions or decisions for businesses, that that was going to be a very important um, thing that took place. Uh, and so, you know, you see the rise of Netflix and Amazon and all these things that, that I would call model-driven businesses. Uh, and then... The second sort of big idea was that um, that as that happened, the people who did that work, the data scientist, needed a system of record. So salespeople work in Salesforce, HR people work in Workday. There was not an equivalent for data science. Huh. And so we were building and, and, and are building uh, the system of record for um, uh, for data scientists. And th- and those were those were really the two big, big ideas behind it. And whatever happened to Domino Data Lab? Does it still exist? Oh, it still exists, doing great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just uh, you know, continues to grow leaps and bounds. I'm on the board. Um, it's still bad. an independent company. Still an independent company, backed by Sequoia and Co2. Oh, uh, really? Primarily, um, and some others, uh, actually including Bloomberg Beta. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, and it's uh, it's it's been it's been very successful. And probably one of the most interesting things about it is just the diversity of industries now that are represented in the client base. You know, it started out a lot of finance firms, insurance firms were interested, but now we have everything from retailers to grocery stores to automakers to pharmaceutical makers uh, because, you know, basically the, the the thesis we were betting on was that uh, the world was going to become model-driven. And, and this is a tool set, this is a tool set to help track how effectively you're deploying your model? It's a it's a tool set that, um, w- you know, basically data scientists build their models using the languages and tools they want in Domino, uh, and then Domino revisions those things, means they keep track of the data and the code and the results, and then you can also publish out. Uh, so you can run models from that. And so it's sort of the, your central repository, your system of record for models. Huh, quite interesting. And... I, I keep coming back to the idea of, of man and machine. When you're evaluating talent, be it um, a startup management team or a, uh, a potential hire or a portfolio manager, how much of that is data-driven and how much of that is your own human intuition? Well, in, in people processes, you know, look, I think there's still a lot of uh, human intuition into it. Uh, we we do try to be as rigorous and as systematic as possible. And what I mean by that is, you know, we we try to start with the job and the outcomes we expect. And as you think about those outcomes, what capabilities are required? And as you think about those capabilities, you know, what's the best way to evaluate those capabilities? I personally don't like interviews. I don't think they're particularly useful. Um, I think that work samples and projects and these sort and and more testing and those sorts of things are, are very valuable. Um, but you know, obviously, there's also 
also, you know, you do need to meet the people and that's, that's a part of it. Um, but for us, the hiring process or the evaluation process of people in venture, um, you know, just has a certain methodicalness to it. That's, that's very important. Huh. Quite, quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Matthew Grenade. He is the chief market intelligence officer at point 72. Uh, if you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things uh, quant and hedge fund investing. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column at bloomberg.com slash opinion. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the podcast. Matthew, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I've been looking forward to this conversation. I have followed Stevie Cohen's career from afar for since the 90s, and I find him to be an absolutely intriguing individual, both as a investor and an art collector and a person who has managed to um, thrive despite a lot of really fascinating challenges. So um, when we first made contact with your office, I was really excited about this. Um, so thank you for doing this. One of the things we did not get to talk about during the broadcast portion was the op-ed that you and Steve wrote in the Wall Street Journal. And um, it's not software is eating the world. It's models will run the world. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so so Mark Andreessen wrote a piece uh, several years ago and called "Software is Eating the World," and it's basically the idea that software is going to change every business. Um, and Steve and I uh, were thinking about you know, kind of what's the equivalent today, because I think that was written almost seven or eight years ago. Uh, and you know, the thing that we zeroed in on was this idea that that really models were going to change the change the business landscape. And you know, you know, the idea of a model. Um, you know, th think about Netflix, right? So I think Netflix is a great model-driven business where, you know, 80% of the content consumption there comes from their recommendation engine, right? Huh. And so basically what they're what they're trying to do is they're trying to build the best recommender possible. They're, you know, you're signing up, they're taking in data about you, they're, you know, your zip code. and But then they watch everything you do. They watch, you know, how you, um, you know, what shows do you jump on right away? Which shows do you finish? Which shows do you not? And that lets them recommend better and better content for you. And then basically at the core of their their business is this engine that's that's you know building uh, or basically recommending content for you um, that you're going to enjoy more and more. And now they're using that same data and that same approach to build content as well. 
Um, so think of, we think about that as a model-driven business, and it's a it's a really sort of powerful moat because once you get the loop going, where you're collecting the data and seeing the outcomes that you're driven you're driving, you can make the model better and better. Um, and so you know we in the in the op-ed what we talk about is uh, some public and some private companies um, that uh, you know that that are model-driven and 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 some of the implications of this trend. Um, and uh, and so yeah, it was a it was a fun piece to write. Yeah, and it's still available if you anybody wants to go see it. Models will run the world. It's in the Wall Street Journal. Um, so when you see something like Andreessen's piece, uh, software is eating the world. I want to say that he's half right. Software had started to eat the world, but we run into problems all the time that software only gets you half the way there, and and the entire infrastructure of Everything from the hardware to the network to everything else that's involved has to work seamlessly. Doesn't quite feel like we're in the future yet. Mm-hmm. How, how do you? How, am I overstating that, or how do you? How do you perceive the world where, you know, a robot butler doesn't take you to work each day, but it's not too far off in the future. You know, I can't remember who said it, but you know, somebody said. Uh, you know the future is here. It's just unevenly right. distributed. You know, I, William I, I, Gibson. Yeah, I, I think there's I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, I mean, you, when you're in uh, you know San Francisco and you you know you see the self driving cars that you know Cruise and and Google and others are making. Um, you know, or that Japan feels, for that matter. That, you know, that that feels that feels very in the future. Uh, and then you know, like you said, you look at some other industries and you sort of scratch your head about you know uh, why can't I get a good cell signal in Manhattan? It's exactly why, yeah, why why can't I uh, you maintain the cell signal on the train back to right. back to Connecticut. Right. Um, but um, uh, so I certainly I certainly agree that it's it's unevenly distributed. But um, uh, but you know there's also a tremendous amount of very exciting things happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and and look that's what makes the venture investing so much fun. You know is, is seeing all that and, and being in, in involved in that world. Uh, having that view of upcoming technologies, how does it affect the way you look at the world of existing uh, public companies? Oh, that's a great question. I look, I think um, uh, you know it makes you um, much more skeptical about their advantages and about the durability of their um, moats uh, of their moats, quote unquote, yeah. right? Uh, and um, you know you look at how fast the changes happened in retail and how dr- and how deep and dramatic some of that took place. Um, you know, and you go back and you look at some of these companies and all the moats they were talking about and the customer loyalty and then poof, you know. Um, and so, you know, one of the things we try to do at, at Point 72 is we, we we try to sort of cross-pollinate some of the big thematic learnings um, from the venture work in with the um, in with the public market investors. We had a dinner a few months ago on robotics um, and we had three or four CEOs of robotics companies and we had our industrial, a couple of our industrials PMs and our healthcare PMs, you know, and it's essentially a discussion, you know, exactly along the lines you said of, you know how is how is robotics going to you know obviously there's going to be a bunch of private companies that get created but it's also going to really change uh, you know uh, in those two areas uh, you know a lot of companies as well how often do you guys have dinners like that it sounds like that's an intriguing uh, evening we do them about once a month mm-hmm. um, we're doing one tonight actually um, and uh, um, you know, it's uh, what's the topic tonight? Tonight, uh, topic's actually talent evaluation. Ah. Um, so uh, Angela Duckworth is going to join. Um, Wrote a book. Uh, grit. Grit. Yeah. Haven't and gotten to. Have you read that yet? I have read Grit. And um, how, how'd you like it? I think it's great. Um, uh, it's been at the top of a number of people's lists for 2018 for for quite a while. Yeah. yeah well, I have a. You know, uh, I, I think it's an 
it's an interesting way to sort of think about uh, you know why people are successful. I also, as a parent, it's something uh, you know you 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 think a lot about. Uh, you know, what can you actually teach your kids and, you know, how, and, and, you know, grit probably at the top of my list of things I really? want my, my children to have and to learn. Huh. Um, and so we have, we have rules now about uh, sticking with things and stuff like that, uh, largely because of her book. So huh. that, that's quite fascinating. Um, I could talk about this stuff forever, but I know I only have you for a finite amount of time and I wanted to get to my favorite questions. Um, so let me jump right into this. So, Feel free to answer these as long or as short as you want. These are pretty straightforward, um, but they usually are a little uh, insightful into who you are. Tell us the first car you ever owned, year, make, and model. Uh, it was a Volvo S40 2000. Mm-hmm. Sort of a the two door with the hatchback. Is that the one I'm I'm thinking of? No, it was a, it was a four door. Four door. Okay. Uh, it was a it was a, it was a new model year. Um, so yeah, it was a four door. Mm-hmm. It was blue. <laughs> What's the most important thing people don't know about Matthew Grenade? Um, people are usually surprised to learn that I'm from the South, um, mm-hmm. you know, having gone to Harvard twice and worked at hedge funds and things like that. And uh, and my family's been from the South from for a very long time. And um, You have uh, the slightest wisp of an accent, but I, not a heavy... The slightest wisp. Uh, and then, uh, you know, and and, uh, and I think, uh, you know, certainly affects my, my manners and that kind of thing, so... Huh. Are are you a courtly Southern gentleman? Is that I a... wouldn't go that far, um, <laughs> but uh, but 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 my uh, my my mom raised me right. She would say so. <laughs> so tell us about some of your early mentors. Who are the people who helped guide your career? Yeah. So. Um, uh... So Bo Jones, who was publisher of the Washington Post, um, mm-hmm. he'd been a president of the Crimson as well. Um, he, uh, I worked for him for a summer, and uh, you know, one of the things, one of the things, was, a couple of things, were very interesting about working for him. One was, you know, he and and Don Graham um, and the Graham family in general sort of really understood the the ecosystem of their business well and and sort of you know, how all the parts interconnected um uh in the in, in sort of you know the, the basically how the, the 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 subscription revenue um you know was important but you didn't want to you wanted to make sure that you kept that price low enough so you have the advertisers and and they had a very holistic way of thinking about the business and then the second uh thing that i thought they you know they very principle-based leaders. Um, you know, mm-hmm. a, new, a newsroom is a place that things can run quite amok, and and the Washington Post has the backs of their reporters, and that was always interesting to watch. Um, another would be Tom Barkin, who um, Tom uh, is now president of the Richmond Fed um, and on the uh, FOMC at the moment, but he was a very senior partner at McKinsey uh, and uh, one of the people who I, I worked with uh, the closest and most when I was there right out of college. Um, and, you know, I think the thing Tom taught me was the uh, sort of seeing the essence of a, of a problem. Um, you know, when you're when you're first out of school and, and you, you can think of a 2000 analyses to do, you know, so, oh, let's do all these things. And Tom, Tom was great at knowing what the what the right question was to ask and the and the right one to answer. So what investors influence the way you look at markets and your approach to deploying risk capital? Well, look, I mean, it's, it's really the two I've worked, you know, closely with. It would be, it would be Ray and, and Steve. Um, and, That's quite a pair of mentors. And, yeah, it is. Uh, you know, with Ray, I think, um, sort of two big lessons. One is, um, 
being systematic, being process driven that, you know, you don't, you, you don't look at outcomes, you look at how you got to those outcomes, uh, and then also being fundamental. Um, and, you know, as, as we were talking about earlier in the world of data science, you can torture the data to say anything. And so you mm -hmm. really have to think about how the, how the world actually works and why what you're finding matters. Um, and then with Steve, um, you know, it's uh, it's the sort of tenacity to to really dig in and, and do the work. You know, which as I mentioned is one of the things he he says over and over. Um, uh, you know, you you don't go talk to Steve about a name or a venture investment or a new strategy without having sort of turned it over a hundred different ways. Um, and you know, his bar for just having you dig deep is is very high. Um, and uh, and those are probably the lessons I've learned most from those guys. Hmm. So we mentioned um, grit. Tell us about some of your favorite books, fiction, nonfiction, finance-related, whatever. Yeah, so, um, I mean, some of my favorite books of all times. Uh, let's see, so... Uh, and well, just, so you know, just so you know, the feedback I get on this question is consistently the most asked about question, and people say to me, I'm always looking for a well-thought-out suggestion for a book, and it's my favorite question you ask people because I've created a reading list off of right. that question. So it's not just a random, hey, what are you thinking about? Yeah, The books people recommend, other people say, he seems like an intelligent guy. I want to read the books that he likes to read. So uh, I'm just so, I'm just so annotating so that before so you. So let's try to do three from fairly diverse areas. Okay. So, uh, so in you know in, in more finance data sciencey, I love super forecasters, um, mm -hmm. which you know is basically Tetlock, right? Tetlock, which talks about how you you know essentially get good predictions, and he spent his life studying how you get good predictions. Which someone in the markets, you know, it's 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 critical. Um, then let's go outside of uh, investing in finance and those sorts of things. Uh, one of my favorite sort of historical books is Wild Swans. Um, which, Wild Swans. Wild Swans, which uh, chronicles the life of uh, three women in China in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think I think China is a, such an interesting story because it just you know it's it, it's there's been so much dramatic change and you look at those three lives and uh you know uh you know one of which is a fair bit of which has been on the cultural revolution and you, you sort of think the world you're living in is the world you're living in and it can just change so dramatically i, I um, want to make sure i have the right book wild swans three daughters of china by jung chang is yes, that it that's it huh quite interesting uh and then we'll go for a classic uh I um I, I love the Tempest by Shakespeare, mm -hmm. um and uh, you know it's it's where I mean there's a lot of things that goes on go on in that book, but uh, it's where uh, you know he he wrote uh, you know what is past is prologue, um, which uh, I think is generally true. The past is prologue could really be the slogan for anybody who creates models. Yes. So yeah. so that works out that works out pretty well also. Um, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Well, there's been a bunch, but, uh, you know, well, I'll do this one. So um, before we started Domino Data Labs, uh, my co-founders and I, there were two of us, uh, three of us total, all, all of us from, um, from Bridgewater, uh, we started a previous business called Cerebro. Uh, and Cerebro was in the talent evaluation space. And so mm -hmm. it was trying to sort of figure out smarter ways to help companies assess their talent. Uh, and we had some great clients uh, in, in, tech, in mainly technology firms. Uh, and we mainly had leaders from the business lines. And so we would sort of do this work. They would love it. And then we would get 
passed to the recruiting department and the project would just die. And we did this like over and over and over again. Um, and what we finally realized was, well, realized a couple of things. One was that at a, at a micro level, that the incentives between the recruiters and the business people were very different. That the recruiters wanted to put people in seats and that the... Um, uh, and that the business people wanted to have great people in those seats. But then more deeply, what we learned was that we actually had no idea what we were doing. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, that we were really trying to build an, a business in an area that we weren't experts in. And that you, you know, that, that is starting a business is just so, so, so hard in like a thousand different ways. And, uh, you know, and so you, you have to, you have to take advantages where you can. And so what we, uh, you know, what we, what we started asking ourselves, well, what do we actually know about? And uh, in those areas of what we actually know about, where are their actual problems? And that led us to domino in the data science space. Huh. So, so you come yep. from the school of Ray Dalio's use failure as a learning experience to improve your next, uh your next attempt at whatever it is. Oh, absolutely. So absolutely. Uh, he told me a, um, a funny story about the inside of his uh, of his book with this, mm -hmm. with yeah. the, the, the failure cycle. Yeah. And someone who will remain nameless said to him, Ray, what sort of uh, signature is that? They obviously hadn't read the book, but um, uh, quite, quite hilarious. Um, so tell us what you do for fun when you're out of the office. What do you do to kick back, relax, have a good time? Um, I like to cook, um, mm -hmm. and uh, this is like going back to being from the South. So uh, my uh, my grandmother taught me to cook, um, and uh, and so my wife and I will throw parties and we'll cook, uh, in particular fried chicken and things like that. And mm -hmm. um, uh, that's probably what I enjoy to you, do. You work off a cookbook, or is it all grandma's recipes? It's usually a combination. Um, so I like to, you know, kind of mix in some more modern cooking uh, with some of the more traditional recipes. So give us um, a few dishes. Uh, well, you know, a, a, a traditional dinner party would be, um, you know, fried chicken with uh, macaroni and cheese and biscuits and blueberry cobbler. But so but real I'll also southern do, cooking. Well, real southern cooking. But I'll also do, you know, like maybe some uh, molecular gastronomy with mm -hmm. like a watermelon drop or something. Right. Um, you know, so you gotta keep it keep it modern, but um, did you see uh, Nathan Mervold's uh, uh, gastro cookbook? I have all those cookbooks. You do? Yes. It's uh, supposed yeah. to be a fascinating. Have you tried any of those dishes? So he has. So he has his his five volumes, five or six volume set that's very intense uh, and completely right. overwhelming. And then he has a home version, um, which I have done a couple of things out of the home version. And um, do they work? Uh, they work, um, but I mean, he's 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 much more serious than I am. So he's he's <laughs> right. he's, he's he's very intense. Yeah, to say yeah. to say the least. So, what are you most excited about within the financial industry today? Well, I think you know the thing that's the most interesting question right now is the people plus machine question. You know, mm -hmm. what are what are the people good at? How do you get the most out of them? How do you um, uh, you know how do, how do you think about those capabilities? And how do you couple those with what machines are good at? Um, and I, um, you know, I think that, like I said, I think the next generation hedge fund uh, is going to be a mixture of those two things. And um, and that's a it's a really it's hard in a lot of ways, but it's a very exciting question. So a millennial or a recent college grad comes up to you and says they're interested in a career in either investing or quant. What sort of career advice would you give them? Well, I'm not sure it would be so specific to any field. I mean, I think uh, I think the career advice I would give, and I'm not a huge fan of giving advice, but uh, since I'm on the show and on the spot, um, look, I, I number one would be um, 
aim, set, set your goals as preposterously as you can set them. Um, you will continuously surprise yourself in what you can do. And, um, I think, uh, um, you know, so, so aim big and, and dream really big. Um, so that would be one. I think second, um, the, uh, is work hard. Um, the, you know, no, no one I've ever met, uh, doesn't, no, no one, no one who I've ever worked for, you know, Ray, Steve, these guys, the, none of them are, are, are not slackers, slackers. Right. Um, you know, I mean, Steve starts every, he starts the week on Sunday morning at seven forty-five, Um, <laughs> and I, you know, uh, and, and that's when, that's when the, and, and he works all day Sunday and he works a fair bit of day Saturday. And so, um, so, you know, I, I think, I think it would be to set really almost preposterous goals, uh, you know, be willing to work really, really hard. And then I think the third would probably be, um, you know, love what you do. Um, I've also never really met someone who was successful who didn't really love what they did. Right. Um, and I think, you know, Steve Jobs had something that he said, I think in the Stanford commencement speech, it was like, if you haven't found, uh, if, you, if you haven't found what you love yet, just keep looking. Um, and I think that's, I think it's right. I think all those things are true. So. So good, good advice. Um, and our final question, what is it that you know about the world of investing today did, that you wish you knew 20 years or so when you were first getting out of college? Uh, we'll stay long Microsoft. No. <laughs> um, right. That, that was a good time to uh, not not panic. Right. Exactly. Um, but I mean, more as opposed to crystal ball, more process yeah, oriented. Absolutely. Look, I, I think the um, uh, you know, I, I think I think one of the most interesting things is just how different um, different periods of time will feel and be. Um, and this goes a little bit to, you know, what is past is prologue and, and using history and things like that. You know, I mean, um, uh, when I, you know, I graduated in, from college in, in 2000, you know, it was the, you know, just as the bubble was peaking and, um, mm -hmm. and the tech bubble and that sort of felt one very, w one certain way. And then, you know, you get to 2008 and you're just in a very, very different, uh, regime. And I think, um, I think the differences between these regimes and how, what's going to work in these regimes regimes is 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 quite different um you know you really have to kind of get your your head around that um and and kind of really appreciate that huh. quite quite fascinating we have been speaking with matthew grenade he is the chief market intelligence officer at point 72 where he also oversees their uh, main book as well as uh helping to manage their venture capital uh business if you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, Bloomberg.com, wherever finer podcasts are sold. And you can see any of the other, let's call it 240 or so, past conversations we have had. Uh, we love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put together this conversation each week. Medina Parwana is my producer slash audio engineer. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.